Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they change laws, change society, or even earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author, and in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. As more and more men climbed aboard the already packed ship deck, they began to grumble. They didn't want to seem ungrateful. They were absolutely elated to be on board this vessel, which was set to finally send them home after months and even years as prisoners of war in enemy territory. But man, this boat was crowded. Like, really crowded. It seemed as though people were crammed into every corner of the Sultana, a Cincinnati-built steamer legally approved to carry 376 people. There wouldn't be enough room for everyone to sleep, that's for sure. The men politely lodged their complaints. Are you sure we can all fit on this thing? They even offered a solution. There were other boats docked alongside the Sultana that seemed practically empty. Can't some of us go on one of those instead to split up the load? James Cass Mason, captain and part owner of the steamboat, assured the men that everything was fine. Besides, those other boats might appear less crowded, but they carried diseases. And anyway, you all were just released as prisoners of war. Don't you just want to get home already? The men surely did. I mean, many of them had been held at a Georgia camp called Andersonville that was notoriously deadly. Some of the soldiers who entered that camp went in weighing 180 pounds and came out 100 pounds lighter. As one news story put it, quote, The majority of the men were diseased, emaciated, weakened, and debilitated from their treatment and lack of nourishment in the prison camps. Many had been wounded in battle and had contracted infection and gangrene while in prison. Hundreds suffered from scurvy, dysentery, typhoid, and pneumonia. To a man, they were malnourished, end quote. So they quit their complaining, and an estimated 2,500 people climbed aboard the Sultana in April 1865. That meant that the ship was carrying some 2,000 more people than it should have been. Two days later, most would be dead. As an investigation eventually found, it turned out their fates had been sealed by greedy men, including Captain Mason, whose decision to ignore maritime regulations in exchange for getting financial kickbacks from the company who owned the Sultana resulted in not only his own death, but in avoidable carnage that remains today the worst maritime disaster in the history of the United States. Usually, when you think of more than a 1,000 people dead at sea in a historically significant shipwreck, you think of the Titanic. Truth is, though, the Sultana disaster not only came 50 years earlier, but it was far worse. But because so much else was happening in the country around the same time, including the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, which occurred April 14, 1865, so about two weeks before the Sultana disaster, It's often just a footnote in the Civil War-era history books. To understand the story, first you have to understand the ship. 
The Sultana was a 260-foot wooden side-wheeled steam transport built by the John Lithoberry Shipyard in Cincinnati in 1862. This is Crimes This Century's friend Lance Geiger, a.k.a. the History Guy on YouTube. Registering 1,719 tons, she was intended for the lower Mississippi cotton trade and for two years ran a regular route between St. Louis and New Orleans. With a regular crew of 85 and room for 376 passengers and cargo, Geiger looked at the case about six years ago from one of his history videos, which are released to some 1.2 million subscribers on YouTube. She was frequently commissioned to, to transport Union troops during the war. Now, things in the United States were, shall we say, fraught back then. The whole United part of our name was basically tongue-in-cheek, what with the Union and Confederates battling each other in a war that killed more than 600,000 people. It's really hard to appreciate just how deadly this war was. If you were an enlisted soldier, there was a one in four chance you wouldn't come back alive. Captain James Cass Mason found himself struggling financially as the war came to an end. It was an abrupt change in fortunes for the man, who in March 1864 had bought the Sultana for $80,000 as one of three investors. At the start, he owned three-eighths share of the ship and also served as her captain and master. Mason was 34 years old and known to be a skillful navigator of the Mississippi River. But it's clear that Mason hit some tough times selling all but one-sixteenth of his interest in the boat. As author Jerry Potter wrote in his book, The Sultana Tragedy, quote, everything Captain Mason owned was invested in this small share of the Sultana, end quote. Which is no doubt why he was particularly intrigued by an offer that came to him in April of 1865. The Sultana was in Vicksburg, Mississippi, when its captain, J. Cass Mason, was approached by Lieutenant Colonel Reuben Hatch, the chief quartermaster of Vicksburg. Hatch had a deal for Mason. Thousands of federal prisoners who had been held at Confederate prisoner of war camps in Alabama and Georgia had been paroled and had been brought to Vicksburg. The U.S. government offered to pay $5 per enlisted man and $10 per officer to any riverboat captain who was willing to take the paroled prisoners north. Now that money was paid to the company that owned the line, but company officials knew that to encourage captains and quartermasters to take on as many passengers as possible, they'd need to let that government money trickle down. So the lines in turn often offered per-soldier bonus payments to quartermasters and captains, which gave both incentive to cram the ships full of soldiers. Those rates might be, say, 20 to 50 cents per soldier. This will come into play later. Now, straight away, there were some issues Captain Mason should have raised. For starters, there was the capacity issue. Mull ships during the Civil War were often overloaded beyond their legal capacity, Hatch's offer promised Mason a full load of 1,400 prisoners on a boat, legally rated to carry 376. And it wasn't an empty boat to begin with, either. Mason already had a few hundred non-POW passengers to ferry up the river, including some women and children, plus cargo like sugar and grain. More than that, though, Mason should have mentioned, you know, our boiler's been giving us fits. But he didn't, despite knowing damn well not only that it was true, but how it had been caused. From a History Channel documentary. During the summer and fall of 1864, 
Mason pushed Sultana to her limits, setting a new speed record on the Mississippi. The numerous hurried trips and the high steam pressure they required took a toll on the boat's tubular boilers. Their temperamental coolant tubes were continually clogged with Mississippi mud, prompting pressure to rise, increasing the danger of an explosion. Now, steamboats seemed a godsend when they arrived in the late 1700s and early 1800s, because until they existed, traveling by river was kind of a nightmare. Basically, you were at the mercy of the river current and manpower. Flat-bottom keelboats could transport goods, and going downstream was pretty straightforward. The tricky part was coming back. According to A History of Steamboats, published by the Army, the riverboatmen had to, quote, pull the boats against the current, end quote, to return upriver from where they started. A round trip could take as long as nine months. Sometimes the boat owners would skip the return, tear their boats apart to sell the lumber, and then travel over land to get back home and do the whole thing over again. That's how difficult the journey back was. Toward the end of the 18th century, however, a Scotsman named James Watt invented an engine run by steam. John Fitch was the first to build one in the United States. His was a 45-foot steamboat that sailed down the Delaware River as members of the Constitutional Convention looked on in 1787. But Fitch's design was prohibitively expensive, and the first successful steamboat came in 1807 as built by American inventor Robert Fulton. Now, any boat run by steam qualifies as a steamboat, but most of the ones you picture from the late 19th and early 20th centuries were specifically paddlewheel boats. They had a hull made of timber and a wooden paddle wheel that was sort of akin to a bicycle wheel and that it had spokes coming from it. Those spokes were attached to planks. Steam powered the paddle wheel to move, pushing the planks through the water, which in turn gave the ship momentum to move against the current. But the steam part in this whole equation could be really dangerous. The steam was made in these metal boilers that were filled with water heated by wood or coal burned in a firebox. According to the Army, quote, The biggest danger facing steamboats was boiler explosion. If boilers were not carefully watched and maintained, pressure could build up in the boiler and cause a spectacular and deadly explosion. One of the worst steamboat disasters ever recorded was that of the General Slocum. The General Slocum's boiler exploded, killing 958 people and injuring 175. The General Slocum explosion was one of the worst recorded, but it was hardly the first or the last. From 1811 to 1851, 21% of river accidents were caused by explosion, end quote. I read that whole thing in part because I think it's interesting that the Army put this report out and mentioned one of the worst boiler explosions in history, which happened in 1904, but not the worst. Maybe that's because the General Slocum's dead didn't include more than a thousand prisoners of war and didn't involve military personnel cutting corners to make a buck. Anyway, come April 1865, the war's end meant that trade had drastically slowed. So steamboat owners weren't faring very well, Captain Mason included. Competition for business among steamboats was fierce. With little incoming capital, with the war now at an end, Captain J. Cass Mason believed his fortunes were about to change. 
with tens of thousands of federal troops and prisoners needing transportation to their homes in the north. If you do the math, the money offered was staggering for the time. As Geiger mentioned earlier, the U.S. government paid $5 per soldier and $10 per officer. And even if we'd just used the $5 figure at the 1,400-person load Lieutenant Colonel Hatch had offered, that's $7,000, which translates to some $131,000 in today's money. But that company made a point to spread some of that money down to the captain and quartermaster, too. So the plan was allegedly this. Instead of dividing the passengers among several different steamships, Hatch would ensure that Mason's boat, Sultana, got all of the POWs who were being transported from a place called Camp Fisk. In return for Hatch sort of funneling these POWs to Mason, Hatch and the captain would share some of the government payoff. The POWs would get home and both men would line their pockets. They figured it was an everybody-win situation. But it wasn't. Captain James Cass Mason was so eager to find a way to turn his fortunes that he failed to disclose to Lieutenant Colonel Reuben Hatch an important hiccup. Not only had Sultana's boilers been repaired twice in recent voyages, but just before the ship reached Vicksburg, where all of these POWs were to board, they'd given out again. Once the boat docked at Vicksburg the evening of April 23rd, Chief Engineer Nathan Wintringer sought out a local boilermaker named R.G. Taylor, who found a bulge in the middle larboard boiler, the portside boiler, which was one of four boilers total on the ship. Anyway, this bulge was bad enough that Taylor was actually surprised the boat had even made the trip from New Orleans, which had been its last stop. Captain Mason and Wintringer told the boilermaker to patch up the bulge, but Taylor, the expert on such matters, said, Nah, man, this is really bad. I can't just slap a Band-Aid on it. I need to replace two metal sheets, and that's going to take some time. Mason did not want to be waylaid that long, so he kept pressuring Taylor to limit the repair to a 26-inch by 11-inch patch. He didn't even want Taylor to take the time to force back the bulge. He seriously said, just throw a patch on top of this weak spot that's clearly about to explode and be done with it. I pinky swear I'll get it properly fixed once I make my next stop in St. Louis. While Taylor did as he was told, he was not happy about it. It took him a good 20 hours to make even this half-assed repair, and afterward, he did not consider the boiler safe, which is what makes what happened next all the more disheartening. A steamboat called the Olive Branch happened to dock near the Sultana while the Sultana was still undergoing repairs. It arrived about 1 a.m. overnight on April 23rd. By 9 a.m., it had some 700 passengers, including soldiers headed home, but had none of the Camp Fisk POWs and could have accommodated hundreds more. Someone noticed this. His name was Captain William Franklin Kearns, who was just 24 years old at the time and serving as assistant quartermaster in charge of river transportation for the Mississippi Department. Kearns apparently said, hey, you know how you've got all these POWs coming from Camp Fisk to board this one solitary boat? Couldn't some of these men be diverted to Olive Branch instead so that the Sultana won't be so overcrowded? Captain Mason said, in short, shove it. 
So did one of his superiors, another captain named Frederick Speed. Speed's job was to prepare the rolls, basically make a list of all the soldiers that were going to board the Sultana to head home. In other words, his gig was compiling all the paperwork, which of course was a painstaking process because there was no copy and paste back then. This was all longhand. The idea was, though, that Captain Speed would ready these rolls to properly document which POWs were on the Sultana. And at first, Captain Speed insisted he do this properly, but somewhere along the line, he decided it was okay to cut corners. Hearing how antsy Captain Mason was to get the Sultana back on the river, he agreed that the POWs could, like, check in as they were boarding rather than have the paperwork done beforehand. So both Speed and Mason told Kearns, hey, mind your own business. These soldiers are all fine to board the Sultana together. And that's where things get a wee bit Shakespearean with the sliding doors, what-if scenarios. If Speed had insisted on doing things the way he was supposed to, the way he normally did, in fact, he would have noticed pretty quickly that there weren't some 1,400 POWs readying to board the Sultana That estimate he had given was hundreds short. And I don't think that Captain Frederick Speed knew what was going on. This is Civil War historian Pam Newhouse speaking to the History Channel. I don't think he took a bribe. They were bringing the men from Camp Fisk in by the train load, about 600 per load. Speed was there physically to load the first train load. Then he went off. Well, when Speed came back, Another load had been put on, a second load, train load, and he didn't really realize that. I don't know why someone didn't tell him, but then here came a third load, and Speed thought this was a second load. So Speed made the bad decision to slack on the rolls, then an even worse decision to slack off on counting the train loads of POWs boarding the Sultana. He further screwed up by trusting anyone's word that a ship rated for less than 400 passengers could handle more than three times that amount, and screwed up again by not noticing that the actual number of passengers had climbed to more than five times that legal limit. Generally, most historians tend to believe, like Newhouse, that Captain Speed was sloppy but probably not crooked. But few believe that about Captain Mason or Lieutenant Colonel Hatch. Mason, as discussed, had some serious financial problems. His moral compass was a little bit suspect, too. He's a northerner, all right, but he was transporting goods to the Confederacy at one point. So I guess maybe he was just not above transporting anything for the buck. Reuben Hatch seemed another story, at least if you got the Cliff's Notes version of his life. If you condensed his tale to a highlight reel, it would come off like this. Hatch had received numerous glowing letters praising his character, including some written by President Abraham Lincoln, before the Ford Theater incident, of course. He had some of the nation's most powerful men endorsing him for a promotion. It all sounds good, but once you dig a little deeper, Hatch's reputation starts to tarnish. The kind words tossed his direction really had more to do with his high-ranking brother, Ozias Matherhatch, who served as Abraham Lincoln's Illinois Secretary of State. While Ozias was largely scandal-free, not so his brother. Reuben Hatch had been repeatedly accused of, and even relieved of duty for, supposedly scheming to steal tons of money from the government. He was chief quartermaster for the Mississippi Department, 
His job was to keep the army supplied with food, fuel, and materials. And he was basically an army storekeeper. As author Jerry Potter wrote, quote, Since the quartermaster controlled large sums of government funds, many men during the Civil War used this position for personal gain. Reuben Hatch was one such man, end quote. His alleged scheme went something like this. He would say, buy lumber from dealers in Chicago for $9.50 per thousand feet. But he would insist that the dealers write receipts out showing that he had paid $10, not $9.50. But he really only paid $9.50. Then he would submit the receipts to the government, which would reimburse him 50 cents more per thousand feet than he'd actually paid, allowing him and his cronies to split the profit. The lumbermen felt icky about this, though, what with a war going on and men dying left and right and such. So they ended up telling journalists at the Chicago Tribune about the scheme and asking them to investigate. The Tribune did so, yay, Fourth Estate. The Fourth Estate refers to journalists, in case you don't know. On December 12th, 1861, a story ran with the subhead the false invoice system. It reported that, quote, the most respectable lumber dealers of the city have informed us of false invoices that have been made in recent sales of lumber for the camps at Cairo, end quote. It continued, the lumber dealers don't like this style of doing business. They suspect that there is something rotten about it. They are not in the habit of billing lumber at one price and taking another for it. They are patriotic and honest men and don't want to have the government swindled where they can prevent it. Brigadier General Ulysses S. Grant ordered an internal investigation helmed by a Captain William Hillier, and all hell was on the cusp of breaking loose. Hillier found that not only was Hatch doing the scheme, but that he'd been keeping two ledgers, a public and a private one, both of which were found washed ashore along the Ohio River. Note to criminals, if you're gonna do the two-ledger thing, you better make damn sure the private ledger, the one documenting your illegal doings, never turns up anywhere, ever. Anyway, the more officials dug, the more shady dealings they found connected to Hatch. Like, he had chartered one steamboat for $1,200 per month, but reported to the government that it cost him $1,800. A court-martial was ordered, and an assistant to the Secretary of War said in a letter that, quote, "...the condition of affairs under Hatch was about as bad as could well be imagined." End quote. In modern lingo, that translates to, Hatch is guilty as sin. But Hatch got his brother involved and Ozias Hatch's close relationship with President Lincoln put a halt to the investigation, and in 1863, Reuben Hatch was appointed chief quartermaster for the Eastern District of Arkansas. Now, the reason I spelled all this out is to explain that this Hatch fellow had been accused of profiteering before, and as spelled out by a documentary called The Sultana from WSKG Public Media, Story has it that he was getting a kickback from the Merchants and People's line. That's the company that owned the Sultana. And so he was guaranteeing them a healthy payload, and in turn, he would get a kickback for doing that. In other words... Reuben Hatch, he's one of the villains of the story. Not the only villain, mind you, but certainly one of the worst. Worst. 
As the war prisoners from Camp Fisk arrived trainload by trainload to crowd aboard the Sultana, the cramped conditions became increasingly tough to ignore. Multiple military men flagged the matter. They noticed another boat, this time the Pauline Carroll, which belonged to one of the competitors to Merchant and Peoples, which owned the Sultana. This ship was tied up beside the Sultana and clearly had tons of room. Captain Kearns, who had already tried to divert passengers to other ships, again told Reuben Hatch, hey, don't you think it makes sense to split these passengers up? To his credit, Hatch did at least send a telegram to Captain Speed asking whether they were putting too many people aboard the Sultana, but between the two of them, they agreed that everything was fine and the prisoners shouldn't be split up. Kearns was persistent, though. He went above Hatch's head and tried again. When that failed, he actually went to speak to the crew of the Pauline Carroll, who said, Hey, we're nearly empty. Send us some of those prisoners. The boat's master even agreed to wait a while, despite having been cleared to leave for St. Louis. For a split second, it seemed the wait might not have been in vain. As more and more soldiers boarded the Sultana, the upper decks began to visibly sag, despite having been reinforced with additional posts. Seeing the boat's sagging decks, the line of soldiers suddenly stopped. The History Channel again. The few men with the strength to protest demanded to be transferred to the Pauline Carroll, a near-empty steamer docked at the wharf. To prevent the loss of valuable passengers, a loading officer concocted an outrageous story. Historian Pam Newhouse. The loading officer told them, you can't go on that boat because there's smallpox on board. And of course, that was what scared everybody in that day, time and place. There was no smallpox aboard the Pauline Carroll, nor were there many passengers whatsoever. The truth was that the ship's master had only offered 20 cents per man, a tiny fraction of the $5 per soldier fee that the government paid, and apparently less than half the 50 cents per man that the Sultana was promised. As such, the Pauline Carroll, which had a legal capacity greater than the Sultana, left Vicksburg with just 17 passengers on it. Meanwhile, soldiers like Private Isaac Van Nuys of the 57th Indiana Infantry later recalled being so jammed together that they felt more like hogs than humans, or, as Van Nuys put it, quote, huddled together like sheep for the slaughter, end quote. Still, despite the concerns they raised, and despite guys like Kearns and others trying again and again to raise alarm bells about the overcrowding, the bottom line is that the highest-ranking officers continued to order these traumatized, homesick soldiers to get aboard the Sultana. They did as they were told. By the time Sultana was ready to depart Vicksburg, This 260-foot steamboat, rated for 376 passengers, bore the weight of approximately 2,500 persons, 120 tons of sugar, 90 cases of wine, 60 to 70 horses and mules, 100 hogs, and the crew's beloved mascot, a pet alligator who lived in a box behind one of the wheelhouses. Yes, a pet alligator. Put a pin in that. It'll come up again later. After the Sultana pulled away from the dock, the mood of the soldiers improved even if their conditions didn't. 
Here's an actor reading the words of a private Chester Berry describing the men's first day on the river. All went as gay as a marriage bell for a while. A happier lot of men, I think, I never saw than those poor fellows were. The prospect of soon reaching home made them content to endure any amount of crowding. The main thought that occupied every mind was home, the dearest spot on earth. Looking back, this was such a slow-motion disaster. A couple of days after its launch, the Sultana stopped briefly at Helena, Arkansas. A photographer opted to take a picture, which excited the soldiers aboard. Even though they'd been warned to stay as still as possible on the ship, they got excited about having their photo taken and a bunch rushed portside, nearly causing the Sultana to capsize. That photo is one of just a couple that still exist of the Sultana, and you can see that every available space is crammed with humans. It was clear to onlookers that this ship was way beyond capacity. Still, it forged ahead. It stopped once more at Memphis, after which the people aboard did their best to try and go to sleep for the night. Many didn't have blankets, much less cots, so they shivered on the damp wooden decks trying to get a little rest. Some made a point to huddle near the boilers where they could find a little warmth. They had no idea that the boiler had recently been fitted with a half-assed patch or that some crew members worried that the patch was starting to give. Nor did they know that even Captain Mason, one of the men who had been adamant that his ship could handle this enormous load, had started worrying aloud that maybe there were too many people on board. He expressed a concern that he had so many men on board that he would give anything, he would give his share of the Sultan if, if he could just get these men safely upriver. Come 2 a.m., things were quiet as the Sultana reached about seven miles north of its last stop in Memphis. Then suddenly... The silence was shattered by a blast that one witness described as more powerful than a hundred earthquakes. The midsection of Sultana exploded, sending a geyser of steam, wood, and bodies 50 feet into the nighttime sky. Those who weren't killed instantly crawled away from flames that had already engulfed the middle of the boat. Apparently, the patch affixed to the larboard boiler blew, which in turn caused two more boilers to blow virtually simultaneously. Some men awoke in the water, completely disoriented, but while those passengers were spared a fiery death, the water was just as dangerous. Most of the people aboard didn't know how to swim, Many were emaciated, wounded, or riddled with infections already, and didn't have the stamina to save their own lives. Plus, the Mississippi was frigid that spring morning and swollen, too, with heavy rains. The shore was three, four miles away, which, of course, was impossible for the men to even know because they couldn't see that far in the nighttime. The people who'd been immediately thrown into the water were arguably the luckiest, though, outside of those who died instantly— Others were scalded by boiling water, some mortally so. One man looked down to see both his ankles were broken with the bones exposed. He hastily made himself makeshift tourniquets and then jumped into the filthy river with his wounds open. Another thing that happened, though, was there were so many men jumping off the boat that they were jumping down on top of each other. They would go 
into the into the water like hundreds at a time and take each other down. So the panic just reigned. Those who survived were the ones who had managed to keep their wits about them. These are people who grabbed onto bits of wood, bales of hay, chunks of stairs, and even floating corpses of dead mules and horses bobbing down the river. One man, a private named William Luganbeel, remembered the crew's pet alligator and sought out its sturdy crate. Finding it, he killed the gator with a bayonet, tossed the crate into the water and jumped after it, riding it to safety. This is a true story. The alligator's name was Sal, and a Sultana-devoted museum still sells Sal the Alligator toys to this day. And we know these stories because the men who lived to tell them either wrote them down or testified about them in the one eventual trial that aimed to hold someone, anyone, accountable. The government pursued three separate investigations, and ultimately, court-martial charges were placed against Captain Frederick Speed, the exchange officer who had miscounted the number of men at Camp Fisk. Speed was initially convicted, but his court-martial was later overturned. No one else was ever tried for the disaster. In fairness, Speed's actions were sloppy, but he had initially tried to push back on cutting corners with the rolls and also initially objected to putting all the soldiers on a single vessel. On top of that, he supposedly wasn't in line to get a cut of the kickbacks. Mostly, it seems Speed was an idiot who believed others when they said things would be fine. You might be wondering why Captain Mason wasn't court-martialed. His story is a complicated one. He was not injured in the initial explosion, but he was seen immediately tearing off pieces of wood from the wreckage and throwing them into the water for survivors to cling to. Survivors reported seeing him racing from deck to deck, helping as many people as he could. He was never seen leaving the wreck, and his body was never recovered. He was 34 years old when he went down with his ship. There had been talk of court-martialing Lieutenant Colonel Hatch, but it never happened. It seems his brother still had considerable pull, even after Lincoln's assassination. Reuben Hatch instead was relieved of his quartermaster duties on June 3, 1865, then honorably mustered out of the army toward the end of July. He died in 1871, with no mention of his controversies in the obituary I found. There's never been a completely reliable tally of how many people were aboard the Sultana when it exploded, which wouldn't have been a problem if Captain Speed had completed the roles in advance like he was supposed to. The best estimates put the count between 2,100 and 2,500, and the author Potter makes a solid case as to why he thinks it was toward the higher end of that range. Only about 900 people survived, and that's not a definite figure either because some 200 of the soldiers who were initially marked as survivors ended up dying from their burns or other injuries before they ever made it home to their loved ones. To research this story, I read part of one book that was too boring to finish, then switched to Jerry Potter's The Sultana Tragedy, America's Greatest Maritime Disaster. 
I also watch documentaries from the History Channel and my buddy Lance Geiger's episode on the History Guy. Other information came from contemporary news reports. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This episode was written by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Jennifer Swatek. Steve Tipton edited the script. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal Music Productions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to CenturiesPod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at CenturiesPod. And check out our Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 